And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, February 9th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, an Army acquisition finance manager is recognized for help in the pandemic fight. Plus, what the federal workforce can glean from the State of the Union speech, if anything. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Pentagon is almost never without one initiative or another aimed at improving its management practices. Its latest effort is a new institute devoted to management research and best practices. Here to tell us about it, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. All right, Alexandra, what's going on here with this new institute? Yeah, so the program is a nonprofit institute run under the umbrella of the Institute for Defense Analysis in Alexandria, which actually runs a couple of research projects for the Pentagon. The mandate of the project is to develop a pool of experts to study management, create development centers that include experts from the academic world, from think tanks, from business, and from government. And also, the Institute's supposed to build a library of best practices and resources. So they're not constantly reinventing the wheel. They're going to figure out what they did that was good in the past and try and do it over again. All right. And as we said at the top, they've always got something going on to try to improve management practices. I mean, every new administration and sometimes within an administration, there's a couple of efforts. So this is following in a fine history of this sort of effort? So this is a long history of them trying to fine-tune this process. As far back as 2005, the Government Accountability Office recommended a chief management officer position. Now, that idea was kicked around and thought of in different ways for quite a while. They finally put someone in that position in 2018, and then in 2021, Congress abolished the position. Before Congress de-established it, they had the Defense Business Board study how it was going with the position. The Defense Business Board said it was not going well. Retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Panero was on that board at the time. So we recommended that it be disestablished. We recommended that the deputy basically reinstate uh, themselves as the enhanced chief operating officer, put the performance improvement organization under the deputy. I remember that chief management officer, and I remember the elimination of it. It was just a couple of years ago. And what did they find the problem was with having a CMO? That's something I talked to General Panero about, and he told me the position never really got off the ground. He said it was never fully accepted by the agencies. It was never fully accepted by the Joint Chiefs. The command structure of the Defense Department didn't allow for integration under that type of authority. Also, the position was vacant a couple of times, and they had to go to an acting manager to fill the role. Panero said he thinks the Institute may be a better solution, particularly with the commitment of Deputy Secretary Kathleen Hicks behind it. Look, the Pentagon, as you well know, is the largest, most complex organization in the world. There's no getting around it. It's a learning organization. They try to improve every day, but frankly, they need outside help. Organizations have a hard time sometimes reforming itself. Well, he's right about that, but you need objectives if you're going to launch reform efforts. So what about reforms? What kind of reforms do the brass in place now think they need to make? 
he had a bunch of ideas about that. He talked about the problems there, the increasing personnel and increasing spending on things without necessarily getting their money's worth out of it. Um, he talked about inefficiencies, all of those things that he hopes the Institute can address. And in terms of reform, AI is one of the biggest ones. I think it's something we talk about all the time. People have trouble logging on at the Pentagon. They reauthenticate their accounts over and over again. There are older computers. I think I wrote an article about it recently, and on social media, I heard a primal scream from people who have these problems. Help desks are another problem. They have redundancies where you have a problem, it's not resolved, you get reticketed for it. Panero also talked about the acquisition process and said it has unrealistic requirements. The requirements process is not linked to reality and to cost most of the time. And that's because they don't talk to industry and, and, and experts about what's doable, what's feasible. Then you have uh, the acquisition system, which is not the same as the requirements in the budget system in the budget. So you have these three separate stovepipes that, frankly, could be better integrated and are not. That's retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Panero. As I did this story, I also talked to Beth McGrath. She left the Pentagon in 2013 after a 25-year career there. She was very involved in, in this management reform process, and one of her positions was Deputy Chief Management Officer. That was one of the permutations of the management chief job that the Defense Department has gone through. I asked her for a wish list of things she'd like to see fixed with the new management institute. She mentioned data management. Secretary Hicks and uh, Secretary Donnelly all talked about data and access to data. Without it, you only know what you know. And so uh, I think the systems is the sort of the first place I would start with the end in mind of both you know, rationalizing the number but also optimizing performance. And so I would tie data right right along with the systems. And then, you know, I'd, I'd probably look at the, the HR process or HR. It's too, it's too slow. That's Beth McGrath, a former Pentagon official and managing director for Deloitte Consulting. She said streamlining HR would help with recruiting because right now people have to wait too long to get through the hiring process. All right, so we've heard a list of complaints. The computers aren't very good, and the networks make people validate all the time. That's kind of a low-level technical issue that with a little money they could fix. Then there's hiring. Then there's, we didn't hear about financial management, but there's data management, acquisition. There's always acquisition. So this institute will bring some coherence to the problems that, that not only the institute identifies, but what are the people in the Pentagon, the career officers, the career staff, are they having input into this institute? They are, and I think a big emphasis on the on the institute will be training people. So they come up with best practices, they learn from their mistakes, they train their workforce and get more efficient and do it better, and all the problems are solved. Well, then after that, maybe they can take on the program objective memorandum process. That's right. There would be a great cheer going up from the central courtyard if that ever got fixed. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what the federal workforce can glean from the State of the Union speech. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. State of the Union speeches rarely contain surprises, but people sift through them to look for clues to future policy. President Biden didn't say a lot about the federal workforce, but there were some items to glean. My next guest knows a thing or two about how these things work. She just became the vice president for government affairs at the Partnership for Public Service, fresh from dealing with federal workforce issues at the Office of Management and Budget. Jenny Mattingly joins me now. Ms. Mattingly, good to have you on. Great. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. And it's a pleasure to talk about all these issues with you. And are you still in decompression here, joining the semi-private nonprofit sector, having just come out of the old, I still call it the old executive office building? Yep. Yep. Actually, it's been a nice transition. Uh, You know, one of the nice things is that the work we're doing at the partnership isn't that different in terms of issues and substance than, you know, things you do inside just a different perspective about it and different way of working. And obviously, this time I'm a little focused on some of the Congress and policies in a way that not always focused on in my role on the inside. Well, the difference is Max can buy pizza for everybody and expense it, which you can't do in the White House. That's right. I say I come to meetings now still carrying my water bottle because I'm used (laughs) to bringing all my snacks and water with me. (laughs) All right. So a couple nights ago, the president gave his State of the Union speech and there was the usual Republican Democratic stuff in there and all of the shouting. But there were some things that stood out to you that presage what the federal bureaucracy, if you will, that has to carry out a lot of the stuff can expect. What did you see in it or hear in it? Well, I like what you said, you know, when you first did the intro about kind of parsing through the speech, because again, things aren't always, I guess every so often there's something about federal workforce or federal management largely, but a lot of times we're reading the tea leaves of what we're hearing in these speeches. And a couple things stood out at me. One was really talking about President Biden talked about the programs that they had passed, bipartisan bills that were passed over the last two years. And obviously for us, those hold a lot of information around implementation. This now moves to the executive branch in terms of having to deal with the CHIPS bill, bill, IRA, all of these different massive pieces of legislation that have many agencies involved. And sometimes those are really implementation focused. And obviously the partnership has a lot of work in terms of research and programming that helps agencies enable that work. But also sometimes there are other policy barriers that haven't been addressed in these. And so will those conversations continue as we see how those play out? Another theme I heard was about bipartisan collaboration. And clearly that's important when we start talking about some of the legislation and policies that we see. I mean, there's a lot of talk around IT modernization in government broadly around customer experience. And those are bipartisan issues. So the more we hear kind of this nod to working in a bipartisan way, I think that's something that we're eager to keep moving forward with. With respect to those bills that passed, they showered literally trillions of dollars into the economy and into the federal government. I mean, way beyond what's appropriated yearly for the operation of government for acquisition and procurement and paying people and grants. And so I get the sense that agencies are still finding their way to how to handle all of this money. Look at all the fraud that happened under some of those COVID relief programs, billions of dollars worth. And so you get the sense that it's a great thing, but there's people down in the trenches 
still saying, how the heck am I going to handle all of this? And I think not only handle it, because we do want to make sure, and you know, coming from a government perspective, I know this idea of making sure that programs work for the American public and making sure that we're good stewards of taxpayer dollars, that's on people's minds. Sometimes it's about the tools that they have to deal with this. It's about getting the staff in, because obviously with more programs and more funding, you might need more people to do the work. And so obviously this idea and the conversations I've heard a lot of, of how do we get the right talent in the door and what's going to enable agencies to do that? And that takes time too. And so there's this tension naturally between trying to get the money out to the people that need it and the programs that need it, but making sure you have the right people in place and enough people to enable that work. Yes, because a lot of agencies have really specifically staffed up because of that spending. Small business administration, not so much the IRS. They Their money is yet in the future under some of the, I guess that was the infrastructure bill that got them money. But this whole idea of enlarging government, that's pretty much on people's minds right now. Enlarging government's one way to say it. I like to think about what's the mission you need to do and what's the right amount of skill sets and talent that you need there. I know for a lot of this, when I was in government, one of the things we were working on was pooled hiring actions. So the agencies working on similar issues could band together, hire talent at the same time. And so that we weren't doing all these one-off actions actually allowed people to look for the skills they needed that are kind of consistent across these positions in government, but also leverage economies of scale. So we're not taking so long to bring people on board. And so some of it was just getting up to speed and doing that. And really sitting down and saying, we need grants managers, we need, you know, IT folks, we need customer experience folks, data analysts. And so those were some of those identifying those skills and just making sure that we could actually band together and hire the right people for that. We're speaking with Jenny Manningly, Vice President for Government Affairs at the Partnership for Public Service. And trust in institutions is something the president mentioned. And that gets down to, you know, you hear phrases, those unelected bureaucrats doing this or that, or the people in Washington not going to work, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's part of that trust component. Yeah, and I think it's really important. And I was actually glad to hear that. Uh, focus on trust in institutions. And, you know, I think we've seen various polls out there that say maybe there's a lack of trust. There's also a difference between trust in Congress versus trust in federal agencies. And so that's a little more nuanced than anything that was said last night. But I like to think that this idea of focusing on trust is something that should drive us in terms of how do we deliver? And that when we were just talking about implementation and having the right people with the right skills, Having agencies that can deliver customer, you know, customer service, they can deliver on these programs, they can do the money out the door in ways that are responsible and respectful of taxpayer dollars. Those are those are things that help enable trust and help keep the trust going. And so I know in the partnership, we've done some work around trust in government and had a report and some data that came out about a year ago in that space and really finding out. Part of what I've found, too, in the trust piece, and this is something I really appreciate about the partnership, is storytelling. There's actually a lot of good work going on in government and a lot of great people. Those stories don't get out. We always hear, you know, there's this sometimes this trend towards the big stories that maybe aren't as positive, And then we forget a lot of the positive stories. And so this idea of really sharing, and that's something we hope to do with Congress this year, is bring up stories of where things are working, where things might need help, but also just keeping that storytelling aspect to bring it back to here's the people and here's the work they're actually doing. And as a more practical matter on the short term, the debt limits that the president brought up the other night, and of course, 
federal employees are well aware that extraordinary measures are underway right now by the Treasury, including using TSPG fund dollars, and there's going to be some sort of reckoning if this isn't resolved in time by June. So what's your feeling there, and what should people take away? Yeah, I think in the federal space, and we've seen this before, this isn't the first time over the you know years that the debt ceiling has been a conversation and that extraordinary measures have been taken. But I think what my takeaway usually is when these conversations happen is it makes it hard for federal employees to sit there and do the work they need to do. It takes some of the focus away from mission. And there's this, you know, should we get to a point where there is a debt ceiling, you know, people start worrying about government shutdowns. They start, you know, we've had that before in the past. And I don't know that we're going to get there this time. My hope is that that bipartisan spirit continues in terms of making government operations front and center. But I do think we just want to keep focusing on we need government working because that's what the American public trusts. They deserve, they, you know, they rely on these services. And so, uh, yeah, our focus has always been, let's make sure government can keep operating. And so I think the more we can have those conversations again about why we need government doors open and government workers able to deliver is important piece to that debt ceiling conversation. Yeah, he didn't mention the return to the office and so forth. That's a big debate, you know, with the mayor of Washington. But to the public, sometimes it appears as if, well, if those buildings are empty downtown, they must not be doing anything. And it gets very fine-grained because it's the answer that someone got, if they got an answer, calling IRS or the resolution of something if they walked into a Social Security office. And there's still a lot of people that want to walk in and sit down and have that help in person at Social Security, just to name one. For many people, it's what happened the other day in their interaction with a federal agency. Fair? Right. And that's where a lot of times you actually do see that nuance, both in this idea of, do I have a person to talk to? But when you look at surveys around understanding government and trust in government, a lot of times people will say, have one view of government writ large, but they like the interactions they have with that person. And so I think that's that, again, that's where I go back to pulling up those individual stories is important because it's easy to get lost in the big picture discussion of this. But I do think too, also being really transparent and communicating who's teleworking, who's not. We've got a lot of federal employees who have been on the job five days a week through most of the pandemic. You know, you've got national security folks, you've got healthcare workers, you've got a whole lot of folks who are out there working and interfacing with the public every day. And so I think just making sure that we're able to tell those stories and to talk about what makes sense, because these are all mission business decisions and private sectors dealing with this too. You know, we've kind kind of come to a whole different way of doing business in the pandemic, just different conversation people are having. But bottom line, the Republic looks like it will survive at this point. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we're all, we're all going down that path. <laughs> all right. Jenny Manningly is vice president, newly named for government affairs at the Partnership for Public Service, recently leaving OMB. Thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the long-running FedRAMP program for cloud computing just became law. But first, an Army acquisition finance manager is recognized for help in the pandemic fight. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. 
pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. This week, we've been interviewing some of the Defense Department's Acquisition Workforce Award winners. Today, we present someone with a title I'm only going to say once. She's the finance manager for the Joint Program Executive Office for Chemical, Biological, Radiological, and Nuclear Defense Joint Assisted Acquisition Team. This is in the Army. Katie Single joins me now. Ms. Single, good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be with you. That's a really long title, so tell us about the organization itself and what you do there. I'm going to shorten our title. We usually just call ourselves JPEO for short. And what we do is we provided all the gas masks to our um, war fighters. That's one of the things that we do. We um, develop vaccines when you're exposed to biological agents. I think you probably remember back in the earlier days, anthrax. And then we do a lot of the detection kits for chemical, biological, um, even radiological and nuclear exposure to determine you know, how much you've been exposed to those type of things. So there's a research component, there's an acquisition component to it, and you are the finance manager. And what is your specific role in this whole complex of things? I like to tell everybody I'm the one that signs all the checks. So for the COVID mission that came through us, I am the person who accepted all the funding and then in turn sent it all over to the contracts, pay of people. I ensured all the vendors were paid on time. Yeah, let's talk about that project because that's the one that actually knitted you this award and it was COVID related. Tell us what the scope was and what happened there. So the scope of the joint acquisition team, we call that JA2 for short. So that was stood up back in early 2020. JPEO received the mission based on our records with handling all the different biological and chemical things that have come through. And then our leadership, they went out to everywhere. They went out to private industry, public industry, DOD, outside DOD. Um, and they were just searching for the best and brightest talents to make this new organization a, a success. And what we did was we brought all these experts together and we accelerated the development, manufacturing, and distribution of the safe and effective COVID-19 tests, diagnostics, vaccines, enablers, and therapeutics for the nation. So this was really a lot more than just buying protective gear for people in the Army and civilians. Correct, correct. This was, and most of our stuff was coming directly from the president or the White House COVID response team. They would tell us we're going to buy one billion test kits, and it was up to us to figure out how to do it, who could do it, how much, and get all of that executed. And then those tests made it out to every American could have gotten a test. So that's one big thing that we did as well. And we're talking about those test kits that come in the little flat cardboard boxes, those kinds of things that the USPS ended up delivering. Yes. Well, getting into that project must have felt a little bit like grabbing onto the car of a roller coaster on the way down a hill. That's a great way to describe it. There was a lot of long days, nights, weekends, one late December, right before um, Christmas Eve. I think it was the day before Christmas Eve was a Friday. About seven o'clock, I received a call from someone in the White House that said, hey, 
you need to award this contract. We're getting you the money. It needs to be signed and out the door. I'm going, today? Who's working on Christmas Eve? It's seven o'clock. But that was, that was quite often that we got those type of quick turnarounds. And what did you discover about the industrial base? Because we all got those kits, and there's a lot of little elements in there, everything from a Q-tip type of thing, a little plastic molded parts, the strip itself, a little chemical vial. I mean, there's probably 25 or 30 individual parts that go into those kits. Was this all sourceable in some reasonable manner in the United States? You watched that challenge as it happened, and then so... As they struggled through that, then you had to watch the money. Right. I had to make sure the money came in and went to the vendors. The vendors invoice correctly and we get it back out. You did talk about the industrial base. I can talk about that for some of our other efforts. You know, when this all started, a lot of the industrial base was overseas. We weren't able to get some of the critical supplies that we needed. And so part of this COVID mission is also to bring some of that industrial base back to the U.S. So we funded some companies to help start them to bring it back here with some of their costs. We're speaking with Katie Single. She's a Defense Department Acquisition Workforce Award winner for the Army's PEO for the Seaburn team. I hope I said that right, (laughs) contracting that a little bit. And let's talk about the lessons learned. I mean, how did it change the organization having been through really trial by fire, you could call it? It changed the organization. We were able to really look at the audibility of um, especially funding and um, coming in and out. We were able to shorten some of the red tape that we had to do. Sure. So, in other words, the speed forced the issue of trying to get things done in an auditable way, in a way that you could justify later, but yet a whole lot faster. Correct. And also some of the stuff that we learned through this is being used in the Ukraine area, being able to do these large contracts quickly and get the stuff out to our people that need it. And the work that you do as financial manager, that must end up being looked at maybe by the Defense Contract Management Agency. I mean, there's a lot of oversight to military spending. There's even the Inspector General. There's the GAO. Have they found you to be pretty clear and clean on all of this? We've had a few audits that's come through already. We've passed those at 100 percent. I think one of them was 240 samples of actions, and they all passed with flying colors. And tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be a financial manager and end up in this really important mission? What got you here? I started my career about 16, 17 years ago now as a budget intern for the Army Research Lab. And I worked there for close to a decade. And then I left there, moved over here to JPEO. Um, I ran some of the Army programs here, labor, I actually left budget for about two years and went over to the manpower side, learning that and how budget and manpower go together. And then when COVID hit, I said, my calling's back at budget. So I applied for this position and got it. And that's kind of how history was made. And do all your neighbors come to you to help balance their checkbooks if people still do that anymore? (laughs) It's funny you say that. Yes. Yes. All of my family, I, I do all of their finances for them. It's a little different, though, because usually I'm going, ah, it's only a couple hundred million. And they're like, Katie, it's a couple dollars. Right. (laughs) You know, same difference. And Army is a pretty good employer from your standpoint. 
Yes, the Army has been a great employer. They've made all my work dreams come true. Katie Single is a Defense Department Acquisition Workforce Award winner for the Army's PEO Seaburn Acquisition Team. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the Army awardees at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the long-running FedRAMP program for cloud computing just became law. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, known as FedRAMP, is supposed to make it easier for agencies to use commercial cloud computing. FedRAMP policy has been around for a dozen years, but only became law at the end of last year. Well, will that make a difference? We get one view from attorney Michael Borgia, a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine. Mr. Borgia, good to have you on. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And you have been watching... FedRAMP for quite some time now, and the usual things people say about it still apply. The vendors say it takes too long to get certified, and agencies seem to want their own certification anyway. So it's there. Everybody admires it. It's been part of cloud. But how can this new law maybe further things a little bit? Well, it's a great question, and to a large extent, we'll have to see. I think that the law did some important things, which discuss. But it it could have gone further. I think it took somewhat of a measured approach, still tried to respect the basic framework we got from FISMA back in 2002 of ultimately this comes down to the agencies and figuring out their own authorization. So, you know, they could have blown that up and they could have said, no, it's going to be decided for you. But they didn't. So we'll have to see. There's a few things I think this law does that is very, very interesting. What you've seen, if you've if you've read about this, a lot of discussion of what's called this presumption of adequacy. I would liken it to sort of a thumb or something on the scale. It is not requiring agencies to take previous authorizations from other agencies or from the jab or you know whatever we have going forward, but it's, I think, trying to push them in that direction. So essentially, in non-legal terms, what the presumption of adequacy says is that if a cloud service has gone through FedRAMP one way or the other, has an authority to operate or an authorization to operate, as it's called in the statute, or a PATOs, you know, things like that, then... Another agency must presume that that authorization is adequate for its own authorization. It doesn't have to take it 100% of the time. There are some kind of outs in the law. The agencies are still uh, empowered to decide that they need more security controls than the FedRAMP ATO might provide. But again, it's a finger on the scale to say you have to presume that. There's a sort of a parallel provision that says it's sort of almost painfully obvious but important. It kind of speaks to the frustration of CSPs in the space that agencies have to check. They're required to check the uh, the database and actually know, has this thing been authorized yet? So it almost seems silly, but yet I think that's kind of where we are. Right. The whole thing is kind of belt and suspenders. It's been certified right. through FedRAMP, this particular service or this cloud provider for agency X. I'm the same size agency and I have about the same requirements, but yet I'm still reluctant to say, okay, they approved it. Here we go, even though they're entitled to. 
but every agency feels it's unique in so many domains, no less so than in cloud computing. For sure. For sure. And, and that's understandable. I mean, you can't blame agencies for feeling like if something bad happens, it's, it's our issue, it's our mistake, our risk. And so we want to have our hands in it and really understand it. Uh, but as you alluded to, there's a lot of frustration among CSPs. There was a, a GAO report from, I believe, 2019 that referenced still fairly significant and common non-use of FedRAMP. Many agencies, I believe the number was, I think 15 out of 24 that were using non-FedRAMP authorized cloud services. They cite the example of, well, I don't think they named the agency, but there's one agency that was using 90 non-FedRAMP authorized. So frustrating, I think, for the government, but also frustrating for cloud service providers, because then why are we doing this? Right. And the term cloud service providers has really expanded in the last 10 or 12 years. Early on, people thought it was the basic cloud operators, the infrastructure companies, Google, Amazon, Oracle, and a couple of others, and Microsoft. But really, it's thousands of companies that offer any kind of software as a service hosted in a cloud. Absolutely. Yeah, there's many different models. And if you we want to deep dive into the FedRAMP materials, you can learn about, you know, infrastructure as a service and platform as a service and software as a service and almost anything else as a service. But this is just a larger IT issue. Even private sector purchases of cloud services, this is where they're going. Moving off an on-premises infrastructure and internally developed software, internally maintained data centers, all the software, all the, the servers, you know, moving towards the cloud. So you're right. It's a multi-layered ecosystem. And so now many, 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 even from the most kind of innocuous software purchases could implicate FedRAMP because, uh, uh, you know, so much is coming from the cloud and from, especially from SaaS, software as a service. We're speaking with attorney Michael Borgia. He's a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine. And you're also writing that perhaps this law can speed up the authorization or the speed up the acceptance of companies into the FedRAMP to become authorized, because that's been a big complaint, is how long it takes and how expensive it is. How can the law boost that process? Well, I think an under-discussed part of the law, and we've only it's only you know just been passed in December, so we'll see. But an under-discussed part is the structural changes to the law. It's kind of amazing given the importance of FedRAMP, and I have to give them credit how much they've been able to accomplish, despite the fact that the FedRAMP is run by the Joint Authorization Board, the JAB, which is made up of the CIOs of DOD, DHS, and GSA. If those are not the largest three agencies, they got to be up there, right? So it's almost treated this as like a side hustle for those people. Um, that's a massive job. Job, being the CIO of DHS or, or DOD, right? And yet they're, they're also doing this and there's not even a separate appropriation for it. So I think one of the important things that this law is going to do that doesn't seem that exciting, but I think could have real changes is actually starting to, you know, in law, in, in statute, build out formal responsibilities, um, apportioning those amongst different agencies, I think giving those CIOs some help, actually adding, you know, potentially members to the FedRAMP board, which is, I think, the new, a newly created by this law board that will have sort of oversight and guidance. I think that while there's nothing directly in the law that says, okay, you, if you do X, you will speed it up. I think the hope is that by formalizing this, by better apportioning responsibility, by bringing in more stakeholders, that it will get better, it will get faster, because you're going to have hopefully more people who are really dedicated to this and really trying to see it through. Right. And you mentioned, too, that the GSA gets lots of specific responsibility, develop, coordinate, implement a process to support agency review, develop and publish templates, best practices, technical assistance, and other materials to support authorization. To what extent have they done that so far? 
so it's interesting. I think that the way – and we'll have to see how this all comes down. But as I read the law, GSA, it mostly maintains its current responsibility. But when you look at the provisions, I think it actually gets into more substance as well. So I think we'll see GSA just have more responsibility and more action in general. So right now, under the current program that was you know, predated the, the law, has been back since 2011, uh, GSA is – I guess it's true to name is their administrator. They have the, the project management office and they put out guidance. They create templates. You know, they are kind of the day-to-day workhorses of the program and they'll still do that here. But there's an interesting provision that also empowers them to actually grant FedRAMP authorizations. And I'm interested to see how they implement that. I haven't seen any discussion from FedRAMP or from the GSA about that yet. But I think that one of the goals here is to put more into GSA let GSA run this again, you know, maybe not have to do so much through a jab, especially because I, again, I'd have to imagine the jab is just tapped out given how busy those individuals are anyway. So run more through the GSA and hopefully streamline the process that way. And then you've got OMB, you've got the FedRAMP board and you've got this advisory committee. So you have lots of people, lots of cooks in the kitchen still kind of offering their advice and guidance on how to improve the program. And the whole thing has a sunset provision too. Yeah, I have not seen any discussion of that, but I think that's fascinating. So five years and then a sunset. I, I don't know. Perhaps that was just an effort to say, look, if this goes badly, then we'll all undo it and we'll go back to what we had and what we had was okay. But I'm hopeful, cautiously optimistic, I would say, that this is going to make the program better, more formal. I don't want to say – I mean, hesitate more professional because, I mean, it's professional, but you know, more of a full-time job and push these things through faster and get a better experience for cloud service providers. And just a detail here, because the OMB director, by law, gets a lot of responsibilities here, Uh and they have to make a report each year to the GAO, so it's a little bit of bureaucracy spreading here. In a practical sense, who in OMB would actually get this responsibility? Would it be the federal CIO? Well, it all comes down to the director. I assume the director will probably have designees, but and the statute, it all comes back to the director. So high level, which I think is good, but we'll have to see who actually in, you know, it would make sense if it was the CIO or someone in information technology, information security. Right, because the law always says the director or the administrator or the agency head, but the reality is someone's belly button gets pushed on by that director, administrator, or agency head. Yeah, well, let's hope so, because, again, those are very busy people. So that's my expectation is I think OMB has kind of a a lot of oversight responsibilities here defined in in the law, and they already did. I did have a lot of oversight. So I I think we'll still see OMB play quite a strong role in this. And they're a little bit of man behind the curtain. You've got the FedRAMP board. You've got the advisory committee, but they still have a lot of responsibility to make recommendations and I think to, to shape what these other bodies look like. So they're not going away. Well, the man behind the curtain eventually floated away in a balloon, so let's not keep that (laughs) in mind. But bottom line, this will enhance adoption of cloud computing, do you think, by the federal agencies? I think so. I think so. I think what I'm most hopeful of, in a way, is that this will make things easier for more medium-sized and smaller cloud service providers as well. You know, I want to make it easier for larger as well. But I think what a lot of struggle here is that more medium and small cloud service providers, and as you said, this doesn't just mean infrastructure providers. This could mean any software vendor that has cloud services and a SaaS model. And they, I think, especially struggled to go through the arduous FedRAMP authorization process and then get told, well, I'm sorry, that's actually not enough for the second agency. You got to go through it again or go through other things. To make matters worse for them, 
you, you may also be familiar with State Ramp, which is a nonprofit organization that has mm-hmm. kind of created as somewhat of a parallel to FedRAMP for states and local governments. And many small and medium-sized businesses want to get into there and provide software for school boards, for you know, city hall, things like that. Well, one of the ways you can do that is by already being FedRAMP authorized. So if being FedRAMP authorized is really hard for a small business, now it's a real kick in the teeth to then say, well, now it's even harder to get into City Hall. So I'm hopeful that it will streamline the process for everyone. In particular, I'm hoping that for the smaller and medium-sized businesses, it will enable them to get authorized. Because right now, I think the authorization process is a huge barrier for those, uh, which is bad for competition. Attorney Michael Borgia is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his blog, which I recommend reading on FedRAMP at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Veterans Affairs Department is looking to improve employee engagement. It started an employee engagement council to listen and recommend changes. So far, the council has considered ways to improve onboarding for new employees and adding training opportunities. The council is co-chaired by VA's Chief Human Capital Officer, Tracy Therrett, and Emergency Physician, Dr. James Martin. Martin is also a bargaining unit representative for the American Federation of Government Employees. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman discussed progress with Therrett and Martin and what's coming next. First, you hear from Therrett. We have an employee engagement framework that we use as a model for what the drivers of employee engagement are and making sure that we are working across the department with our administrations, our staff offices to further those goals and those drivers of employee engagement. But I think what we're most proud of is the opportunity to work as co-chairs, equal member management, equal membership of labor, representing the roles and responsibilities of the council and furthering the needs of our employees from both the employee engagement and the employee experience perspective. We do a lot of partnering with our Veterans Experience Office to make sure that we're both looking at the journey of an employee, some of the bright spots and pain points, and then working as a council to make sure that we are addressing some of the needs behind those moments in an employee's life cycle. Our drivers of employee engagement, we've been working really hard on to make sure that we're reflecting what's important about employee voice, what's important about an innovative work environment, what's important about uh, recognition and rewards, learning and development, and just continuing to put all of that at the forefront of what we do. We have an awards subcommittee that's part of the Employee Engagement Council. They make recommendations to the secretary on eye care award submissions We've also partnered to make sure that whole health training is part of new employee orientation. We've worked with VEO to make the onboarding experience better through welcome kits and buddy programs. We've also pushed out a lot of information about mentoring to encourage mentoring programs at the local level. And it's really important, especially for our healthcare workforce, that we promote all of the opportunities around scholarships and tuition reimbursement so that they can continue their learning and development and continue to be part of the VA team and feel a sense of purpose in contributing to the mission. Dr. Martin, can you tell me more about your role on the Employee Engagement Council and what your work really looks like with that? The unions are participating, That my, my labor partners, and uh, AFGE is one of five unions present at the VA. We have about 80% of the bargaining unit. 
the other unions, the other four unions, we're all equally represented on the council. So there's 10 of us, two spots allocated to each union. So what I like about it is the, the work that I do behind the scenes, you know, my calls with, you know, my other partners to basically flush out issues. There's an interaction, there's a discussion, and my brothers and sisters in the other unions, and most of us are AFL-CIO, so there's that umbrella organization that we fit under, not all of us, but most of us. This is my first co-chair of this council, and I'm very excited about it, because I do think that we're, we got some traction going. Tracy, what does it really mean to have union representation at the council, and can you share any plans coming up for the Employee Engagement Council? Having the voice of the employees from the exclusive representative is so important and that we have all five of them represented on the council is no small feat. And we also have, I should mention, we have the voice of the veteran also represented on our employee engagement council because it's always helpful to have representatives helping us to see what they hear from our employees so that we're connecting employee experience with veteran experience and ensuring that we are making VA a a best place to work. One thing that Dr. Martin and I are working on this year are some webinars. We know how busy our employees are. We know some are virtual, some are on site, and being able to participate in health and wellness events, being able to participate in webinars around how to develop an individual development plan, sharing information and knowledge as, as broadly as we can across the department. And I think the other thing that we've kind of tried to focus on is making sure that the burnout that we hear, especially from our clinicians, is heard and addressed by the council in in the ways that we are able to either establish programs or to go to management with ideas and suggestions. We don't have a lot of votes as a council, but we do have those opportunities to bring things forth for a decision. And sometimes, you know, Jim and I would even if it warranted, take it to our assistant secretary and say, you know, Ms. Grosso, we really believe this is something that needs to get to the secretary's level so we can have his support and his voice and his input in what we're trying to do to make the VA a best place to work. Tracy, you mentioned a minute ago that you take information or hear about what you call bright spots or pain points from employees. Can you give me some more specific examples, maybe the burnout that you mentioned or some other ways that you're taking feedback from employees and turning it into specific programs or changes that the council is working on? Onboarding was a pain point that we heard, and that's why we worked with VEO to say, let's make sure new employees have a buddy when they start, not just their supervisor, you know, or or a coworker. And then also making sure everybody has some standard information with that welcome kit that they get. So those were two things that we heard from employees that we worked collaboratively to try and address. You know, in terms of bright spots, I really do think we have some amazing learning and development scholarship reimbursement programs, either for continuing education. And sometimes facilities feel constrained that, well, we don't have enough money in our budget to be able to do this. Or, you know, employees may not know who to go to to get that information. So through the council, when we disseminate it to our labor partners, we have a greater reach into those facilities to make sure that information gets to the workforce. And Dr. Martin, what about you? Anything that you'd like to add about how you're handling feedback from employees on their engagement levels? Well, let's talk about burnout. Here we are at hopefully the tail end of this uh, pandemic. The pandemic has stressed the staff. I remember one weekend, five of our nursing staff 
were out sick with COVID. Then the ER docs, they were doing it sequentially. One week, it'd be one, one gal or guy, then another week. So it was really stressing all of us. That has eased up. And plus, we have hired, we have more depth in our uh, hiring. Then the unintended consequences of going to virtual encounters, it's turned out to me, I think, a blessing. I think it increases our productivity. Unfortunately, some members of Congress see it a different way. But in reality, I think if you look at primary care and mental health, I think the ability to do virtual appointments has been beneficial for the employees and for the patients, especially the patients. After they've established a relationship with a physician or a provider, doing a, a telemetry call is, is not that difficult. You know, once you, once you have the relationship, having to adapt to virtual encounters is, I think, in the future going to be a highlight of our programs. Tracy, how does that connect back to the bigger picture of the Employee Engagement Council? So much of what we do, we try to link back to those drivers of employee engagement, whether it's, you know, promoting more of the servant leadership behaviors or making sure we are listening to employees and taking that feedback and building programs or addressing areas of opportunity. I think also just continuing to focus on the employees and being able to bring forward their stories I know through the iCare Awards program, that's a wonderful way to recognize the good work that's happening across the department. We do have a face-to-face employee engagement council meeting every year, and it coincides with the secretary's customer experience awards program. And it was just really wonderful to see the secretary and our employee engagement council members being able to celebrate that event last year together. Veterans Affairs Chief Human Capital Officer Tracy Therrett and Emergency Department Physician James Martin, co-chairs of the VA's Employee Engagement Council, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what the federal workforce can glean from the State of the Union speech. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 